Oh my. Well, I'm gonna take a moment just here. I probably say this every time I get up here. I love our worship. I really do. I think we have some of the best worship, period, in this city, in this state. It is marvelous, so thank you all for that. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark uh, chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, and we'll get started here. And as you turn there, I'm going to tell you a little bit about a story that kind of caught me off guard when I heard about it. There's a city up north, obviously, called Detroit, right? A lot of people have different ideas about the city. Uh, all I know is the lines are there, so it can't be any good. But anyway, so they got Detroit, and a lot of people, they take it as a city that's kind of run down, it's kind of beat up. But in reality, in the last few years, it's actually kind of had a rebirth in some of its business sectors. It's starting to actually turn things around, which is marvelous, right? And there's a young man there, and he had a, a small tech company. It grew, and he finally sold it off. He, he started to gain some success and some notoriety. He worked hard for it. And he finally become to the point of a little bit of extravagant wealth. And so he's going to treat himself. So he went and he bought himself a brand new Jaguar XKE, beautiful, jet black. And he decided he was going to have a little fun with it. Paid for it in cash, got it off the dealership, brand new, and just started driving down. He knew where to go. And so he found a section of the city where it's kind of a straightaway. There wasn't really a lot of traffic. He knew there wasn't really a lot of police officers. And so he kind of kicked it into high gear and see what it could do a little bit, right? So he's driving. Now, he's, he's got full control, but he's focused, and he's going as fast as he can legally. And then he, uh, as he starts going, he catches something out of the corner of his eye, and it terrifies him because it was a brick. Not like a brick falling from a, a building. A brick coming straight at his brand-new $85,000 car. Okay, And, of course, all of a sudden, he hears a smack on the side. He hits the brakes, and the, it all locks up and screeches. And, it, and he looks back, and in the mirror, he sees a young boy, probably 10 or 11 years old, and he doesn't even think about it. He's just infuriated, right? So he hits this thing in reverse. He jerks it back, almost hits the kid, jumps out, grabs and says, I can't believe how ridiculous you just were. Do you have any idea how much this car just cost me? I'm going to find your parents. We're going to walk back. You're paying every penny of what it's going to take to fix this. And for the first time in his tirade, he actually stopped and he looked at the kid. He was terrified. He had tears rolling down his eyes and said, Mr., I'm sorry. I, I don't care. I'll pay whatever you want me to pay. It doesn't matter. I just need your help. He said, I've got a big brother, and, and he can't walk. And, and we hit a pothole, and I and he tipped him over, and he's laying face down on the road right now. I can't pick him up. I just needed someone. I saw your car, and I, I did the only thing I knew. I, I don't care. Just help me. The car didn't really matter. They started running. Sure enough, he comes, and there's a a young man, probably two or three years older than his brother, laying face down, kind of like halfway on the sidewalk, halfway in the road. And he picks him up and he makes sure he's okay. He's left his car in the middle of the road. He doesn't care about it. He just takes both boys back home and he checks the parents. And he, and he makes sure they're well taken care of. And as he walks back to his car, he's absolutely ashamed of himself. Because just a moment, that car mattered more than anything in this boy's life, in the life of another kid. A few months later, he was at a business meeting with his partner. They had closed on yet another successful deal. They were going to go celebrate. And his partner was walking with him out to the parking lot area, and he noticed on the car that that, that back fender was still all messed up. I mean, the paint was chipped. It looked horrible. The dent hadn't been fixed. He said, dude, hey, 
this is the business world, okay? You're looking kind of homeless, you know what I'm saying? So we need to get this fixed because it's all about appearance. You got to make sure you look good, present yourself right, blah, blah, blah. He said, I don't care. I'm never fixing it. Why? Okay, I know you might have some debt or something. I'll pay it for it. No, 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 I'm not fixing it. He said, for me, this is my lesson every day. He said, every morning when I get out, of my multi-million dollar house and I walk to my $85,000 car, I look at that debt and I remind myself not to be so busy and consumed with myself, so fast-paced, so focused on what I want that I don't stop every now and then and look around on what's really important. I do it all the time. We get busy. We get obsessed with things, with stuff, with schedules. And before we know it, there becomes in us one of the most dangerous things in the Christian life, which is apathy. Remember that familiarity always breeds apathy. And you're in no more danger than when you become apathetic to the things of God. I'll be real, I was, I was reading my devotions one day and I got to the, the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest sermon I ever preached. I was flipping through it and, and I just got to the Lord's Prayer, read through it really fast, moved on. And the Holy Spirit hit me right in the heart and said, I just had something there for you. (laughs) But you're too busy checking off something on your to-do list rather than listening to what I actually have to say. And that broke me. So we're coming to the crucifixion. Most, not, not even possibly, it is the most important event in all of human history. And how many times have I sat here because I'm so used to hearing about it since I was like a little kid. And I read those words and they crucified him and I just breeze over and I move on. In fact, when I first heard about it, I was kind of like, well, I mean, it's not Easter. Do we really need to preach on the crucifixion? I mean, we, we, we listen to the crucifixion's Easter, then there's like candy, and then I move on with the year. I trivialized it. But we all do it. So today I want to slow down. I want to take a few minutes to really dive into what's happening here. And I want it to let us focus in and let us seep into our hearts a little bit. Let's look at something very familiar and extremely important. And hopefully it can change us. Change everything about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and the many blessings that you've given to us. I'll be honest, I'm terrified to preach this. because it's a really, really heavy subject. Lord, I need your help, I need your power, I need your spirit, I need your hand on me. Father, I know that if you don't move, that this time is wasted. So I ask that you be with us as a congregation, that you'd move among us, that you'd stir us, and that in spite of me, you would use this message for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that you would have the preeminence. In your name we pray. Amen. As we're looking here, I'm going to catch us up a little bit, some of the background of where we left off. Last week, we talked about the betrayal, right? We, we talked about that moment when they were in the garden and Jesus had been praying in agony because finally, for three years, he'd been, he'd been in this ministry actively moving toward this purpose, and it was here. And now that the betrayal had happened, Judas came in and he kissed Jesus on the cheek and they dragged him away. By the way, it stuns me that you could be close enough to kiss the Savior of the world and still miss him completely. But that's where he was. So they drag him away to Sanhedrin, and it was just a kangaroo court. It was basically people who were obsessed with following the law except for right now. 
They threw out all the stipulations, and they just tormented the guy all night long. And then we get to chapter 15. They've already decided he's worthy of death, but under Roman law, they can't do that. And so they take him to Pontius Pilate. Pilate, historically, uh, was kind of an authoritarian, a letter of the law kind of guy. But he had a, a habit, according to Josephus, he had a habit of kind of caving to mobs. Because if there was a riot in your city, there was a likelihood that you could be killed yourself once they calmed down the riot. And so they knew if they could just stir him up, they might have a chance. So that was their play. Verse 1, it says this, hear, uh, hear the word of the Lord. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders and scribes, the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priest tied Jesus up and led him away, handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, you say so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, and aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of, but Jesus still didn't answer, and so Pilate was amazed. In this passage, you'll see that there are a couple of what I would call exchanges. There are a couple things that Jesus offers on our behalf, a quick barter, if you will. And we're going to break those down a little bit. The first exchange is that he, in, uh, in this passage that we read, is that he gave no defense in exchange to be our advocate. He gave no defense in exchange to be our advocate. So Roman law is a little different. As he went there, they had a, a system that, honestly, our founding fathers had actually borrowed from when we made the Constitution and other legal systems. Uh, one of the l- rules that they changed that was different from every other empire was they assumed that you were innocent. Great, because in most countries you were assumed guilty. Good luck. But here you were assumed innocent. Number two, they also changed that you were allowed... Uh, only to be convicted of capital punishment if there was an overwhelming evidence against you. Now, what that would mean is you could face your accusers, they accuse you of anything else, and if they didn't produce anything whatsoever in the form of evidence, all you had to do was deny the allegations and you were free to go. So here's Pilate, he comes in, there's this prisoner, they accuse him of all these different things, and there's obviously no evidence to weigh against him. So all he has to do, he says, okay, are, are you trying to have an insurrection? Are you trying to revolt? And all Jesus would have to say is, no, of course not. I'm not against Rome at all. And he could walk away free. But he did something extre- extraordinarily different. He didn't say a word for us. You see in Psalms 22, it says, like a, a sheep coming to slaughter, he remains silent. He opened not his mouth. So understand this, the one man who could have easily defended himself, easily walked out, the innocent man decided instead to be quiet and forego his own defense. Why? So that he could one day defend us. See what I mean? Well, the Bible says it this way. We have one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. The word mediator is kind of like a lawyer. You and I are guilty. We can admit it. We haven't done anything right. But we have someone who will advocate for us, and that's the man who was silent on his own behalf, Jesus Christ. So Pilate's amazed by this. He doesn't really know what to do. This is kind of a gray area. You see, in Roman law, if he didn't defend himself, but there was no evidence to convict him, he kind of was just supposed to sit there in limbo. There was no way to deal with this. They hadn't made a procedure for it. So Pilate instead came up with a plan. He said, I, I had this festival. So verse number six, it says this, And the festival Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. 
And there was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels and who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate uh, to do for them, as was his custom. So Pilate answered them and said, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was just envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so they would release Barabbas to them instead. He said, well, what, do you, what would you have me do with the one you call the king of the Jews? And again, they shouted, crucify him. So here's the understanding. Passover's coming over. Now what the Romans did was they would try to placate those who they, who they put underfoot, right? And so how he would do this is each year he would bring prisoners out and he said, okay, here's Here's so-and-so, he's committed this crime. I'm going to let him loose to you. I'm going to let him be free so that that way you can be thankful. And once again, he's trying to make him happy. So he had a great idea. Okay, I've got this guy named Barabbas, all right? Now, Barabbas is literally a freedom fighter. He's part of a group called the Zealots. Zealots literally means dagger men. There's actually a disciple who was a zealot. And what these people did was their whole goal was to walk the city. And anytime they found a Roman soldier by themselves, they took him out. So Barabbas was not a nice dude, okay? And he says, here's this guy in the, last, uh, in the last revolt that we put down. He killed somebody. Now, do you want him or do you want this Jesus who you call the king of the Jews? Give us Barabbas. Famous line. And so Barabbas gets to go free. And here we see a second exchange. Not only did he forgo his defense to be our advocate, but he was convicted as a rebel that rebels could have a new life. There's a philosophy called humanism. And basically what it does is it says that people are ultimately born uh, as, a, as a clean slate. If you want to sound fancy to your friends, say tabula rasa. It means the same thing. Clean slate, all right? We're basically perfect. There's nothing wrong with us. And what happens is we're raised by bad people in bad environments and kind of imprints on us. And, and that's the only issue, really. And so if we, were, if we were raised by perfect people, maybe a village of perfect people, right? And, and they just didn't put in all the bad things in. We would basically come out perfect. We'd have utopia. Everything's fixed. But that's not actually what the Bible says. See, the Bible says that ultimately you and I are rebels. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. He said, the gospel is not a call for good people to become better people. The gospel is a call for rebels to finally lay down their arms. We're sinners to our core, totally and completely and utterly depraved in every inch of our hearts and souls. Now, Here's the thing, I, I was at a discussion with a young man, and he asked me, well, why is God so harsh? I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, I mean, if, if I lie, boom, punishment. If I am mean to my brother, death for all time. Like, what? That's, that's a little harsh. Well, not once you understand what's really happening. You see, I put it this way, when I'm with my little girl, Addie, I ask her a question, and I say, okay, Addie, who made everything? God. Okay, what is sin? It's just disobeying God. Okay, well, what does sin do? Separation from God. 
You see, ultimately, this is his kingdom. It's his world. It's his universe. It's his everything. He makes the rules. And any time that we sin, any time that we go against him or fall short of his nature, it's not simply doing something wrong. It is literally and totally raising up a rebellion within our hearts, saying, I know better than you. It's an insurrection. And for any insurrection, for every insurrection, there's only one outcome. Death. And that's what I deserved. Anyone in this room, you can simply read the name Barabbas and put your name there instead. He could have walked away, he did. And he was stood before a crowd, and there we stood, guilty and worthy of death. And he takes our conviction so that we can walk away free. Incredible. Now, I'm going through the next point. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to try to be really careful here without watering down Scripture, but just because of the audience. But the third exchange is they took away his dignity for my redemption. Isaiah 53 says it better this way when it talks about the sacrifice. It said, Yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains, but we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God. He was pierced because of our rebellion, and then this word kills me. He was crushed because of our iniquities. That word crushed literally means to be grinded into powder, to be pulverized. You see, Christ's death was not simply the death of a martyr. It had to be the full wrath of God presented upon his son. So a quick and painless death was not an option. It had to be a pouring out of the utmost pain. So let's see what happened. They shouted, crucify him. Pilate said, why? But wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. The flogging was relentless. It's actually really rare that you would have the flogging and the crucifixion together. This is only, I think, the second time in all of Roman history that we even find that happening. Because most times, by the end of the flogging, you were already almost dead anyway. There's actually reports of some men dying soon after, some men who would die there at the post. It was very rare to have both. And the Romans' law, it wasn't like the Jewish law, a certain amount of stripes. They actually had a different code. They didn't stop till they saw bone. They laid him bare. And then the soldiers led him away into the palace. This was kind of a last treat for the king before they killed him. They brought him into a mansion. They put a nice robe on. It was a purple robe. The reason for that is because to get that dye was incredibly expensive. So imagine being dressed in a nice Armani suit right before your death. They took the crown of thorns and they beat it on his head. They just abused my Jesus. They couldn't let him just die. It took away every ounce of dignity that he had. 
This wasn't a simple death. It was an absolute crushing of a man. Now we see that he bore a cross. It wasn't the Latin cross. Most people see the, you know, the picture of the painting. It's a giant cross T. At that point in history, the Romans actually had done something a little bit different. It was probably just the crossbar itself, weighing somewhere between 150 and 200 pounds, and they strapped it on his shoulders, and they walked him down the Villa de la Rosa. Now, look, Jesus was 100% man, 100% God. And so in his humanness and his brokenness, there's no way he could carry that long, and so they had to have someone come and help him. He walked up a hill, and they nailed him to a tree. The reason they nailed him was because crucifixion was meant to be a very slow and agonizing pain, and the nails would help secure that. You see, they would put it, it would actually come, but it wouldn't come in the palms, because if you put it in the palms, they would rip the hands off, like it would just fall through. So they put it right here between the two bones, the oldness and the radius, and it would hold him fast. And also there's a nerve right there that would cause immense pain for the rest of his life, however many hours that would be. On both sides. And as he lay there, they would finally put the crossbar on top, and when it was slid down, his shoulders would begin to dislocate. It crossed his legs and nailed the feet. Now the body naturally fights for air, so what would happen in that position is you, you can inhale, but you can't exhale. And so he would use the nails to pull himself up on that raw back. just to take a breath. I think the most embarrassing part is they took away his clothes. Just so that way he, he had no dignity left. They gamble for him in front of him. I was talking to Weston this week, telling him about the sermon. I said they had to remove his robe so that his robe of righteousness could be placed on me. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, this is truly what sin deserves. This is the wrath of God poured out and what each of us in this room has earned. And by these, these wounds, I was healed. And sometimes I get careless and I read over the crucifixion not realizing what just happened? But the Son of God bore the worst of pains for me. But that was not the worst exchange. Point number four. He gave no defense to be my advocate. He was convicted of rebels that I could go free. His dignity was stripped away for my redemption. Point four is this. He sacrificed his fellowship. For my adoption. It's bad enough the torment that he was in. But for him, the final torment was the worst. Verse 33, it says, When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, understand, I believe that God definitely uses culture and, and kind of shows things to culture. We see that in the Egyptians as the ten plagues. He had used specifically the, those plagues to denounce the ten top Egyptian gods. 
Well, in the Talmud, which is the Jewish society, it's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were actually starting to build and collect and, and really follow more than the law. They acknowledge that in the best of their understanding that when God darkened an area, when God made it dark, he was showing wrath upon a great crime. So for them, of course, they see, see, this is, he, God is judging him. He's a great crime right here. But no, the great crime that had, commit, had been committed was my own. And it was being judged right here. Christ cried out and with these words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, this is a mystery. I'm not going to pretend that I fully understand it. Martin Luther tried to understand it, went to his closet for three hours and said he came out more confused than when he went in. But I will say this, in all the Gospels, this is the only time that Jesus refers to God as El as opposed to Abba. It's the only time that he becomes formal with God as opposed to calling him Father. Why? Because for this brief moment, the Father had to turn his back on the Son. And there was no worse torment than being separated, even briefly in some way, from the Father. But why would he have to do this? Well, it's obvious. You see, when it started with Adam, the first perfect man of all creation was Adam. And he willfully rebelled against God. And so by one man's sin, death passed to all of us. And separation was put between us and God, which is why in the temple they had to have that large veil to separate the holiest of holies from the people. And the only way to restore that separation, the only way to bring us back into fellowship was for another perfect man to redeem us from our sin. Obviously, we couldn't be perfect, so it had to be the Son of God, the God-man, 100% man, 100% God. It was the only way to balance the books, to justify it. And so for that moment, the fellowship between the Father and the Son was darkened so that I could become a son and have it restored. Galatians 4, uh, five, and, uh, 5 and 4 says this, but, or 4 and 5 says, but when the full, fullness of time had come, God had sent forth a son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption of sons. He had to call God God so that I could call God Father. He was separated from God, not for his sin, but for my own. So that I could come to the Father and call him my own. How precious. And they laid him in a tomb so that I could have a mansion. He slept, or was laid rather, in the ground so that I could have a place in heaven above. Everything was an exchange for me. He gave himself for rebels. So where does this leave us? I, I asked myself a lot this week, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to understand? What is, 
what is the application for us now beyond the gospel, beyond just, well, he saved us. Yeah, great, awesome. That's Easter, and now I move on. I was reading in a book, and I, it hit me from the screw tape letters. I know we, we, I've mentioned it a lot lately. Because it's the best book on the earth, if you have, besides the Bible. If you haven't read this book, you're missing out. Go get it, read it, you'll love it. The screw tape was writing to his nephew, Wormwood, and he says it this way. He said, you should put in the idea of the patient, that's us, you should put in the idea of the patient that time is his own. That way he's really upset whenever something unforeseen affects his plans. Better yet, make him believe that he has ownership of anything. That'll do. You see, we understand there's a big difference between my boots and my God, but they can be taught to have the same attitude regarding both. The grand joke above heaven and hell is that they believe they have ownership at all. You see, the exchange was a purchase. He didn't merely want our redemption. He bought us from the slave market, and we are his. And the only logical recourse I can come when I look at the cross is that if he was willing to lay down his life for me, then I'm willing to follow Romans 12.1, crawl up on the altar and live for him. But the problem is, is we still think that we have right to our own schedules, our own opinions, our own thoughts. These are my kids. This is my family. This is the things that I have to do. No. You're a steward. And every breath and every moment and everything that we have is a gift by his grace. And if he was willing to give everything for us, then our only recourse is to give all of ourselves to him. You came at far too high a price to hold anything back. He wants all of us. Dwight Lehman Moody, probably one of the best evangelists ever. Under his ministry, uh, it was commented that he took two continents and shook them for God. They estimate that roughly five to six million people came to know Christ under his ministry. On his deathbed, he said this. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with one man fully surrendered to his will. Wouldn't it be amazing to see what God can do with one church body of Blackman Baptist Church if we would just surrender everything to his perfect will? We got an election, and I got a job, and I got all these things. It's not what we're to worry about. Our only concern is this morning, am I fully surrendered to the man who bought me at the highest price? That's it. So let's stand. I'm going to invite the musicians back. And I'll hand over the time of response to Brother Ken here in a moment after I pray. My encouragement to you this morning is simply this. Hold nothing back because nothing was held back for you. Let's come either at your seat, at the altar, wherever you are, and let's make a decision today that he gets all of us, every bit, because he gave all of himself. Let's pray and I'll hand it over. Father, thank you so much. We were unworthy of the precious gift of your son, but we're still so thankful. Be now at this time and help us as a church. 
to fully embrace you as our master and king. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.